Amen. Be seated. Amen and good morning. It is great to be with you this morning. I hope you had a good week. I'm really grateful to be here with you today. I want to thank Joe and the worship team for leading us this morning. And man, good to be reminded of our identity as a child of God and that God is a good, good father. Amen. And I want to thank Kevin for his thoughts uh, around the table. Uh, I love that line, Kevin, that God, you've got it all covered. And I hope you've already been encouraged this morning as we have gathered. I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we're going to be uh, studying this morning together. And uh, it's a very short passage that we're going to look at, but one that I really want you to look at as we read so you can kind of see the words and hopefully they'll settle a bit more into your heart and mind and spirit as we study. I want to, uh, while you're turning to Ephesians 6 or finding that, uh, I want to just mention again a back-to-school Sunday reminder, uh, just a reminder that that's happening a few weeks from now. And in case you missed the announcement last week, this year we're having back-to-school Sunday uh, the week after some of our, many of our school districts start on Sunday, August the 26th. And we've made that decision months ago and waited till now to tell you, but because it didn't seem really seem relevant until now. But our hope is uh, that, that by moving it back a week, uh, that we will be able to create more opportunities to invite friends and family and classmates, coworkers, neighbors uh, that you may not have seen all summer and that the beginning of the school year might provide an opportunity for an invitation. And so I encourage you to be praying about that. We want to have a really special day uh, that day uh, on August the 26th. Uh, so this morning we're going to continue working through Ephesians and we arrive in uh, the next part of Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, which is a really, really, really important part of this letter. And so I want to read uh, and ask you to follow along with me as I read Ephesians 6. I'm going to begin in verse 10. Paul writes these words, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, I'm going to stop there, and we're going to pick back up in verse 13 on a different week, because those few verses right there have enough for us to spend the next few minutes together talking about Now, one of the things that I like about preaching through a book of the Bible is that it does not allow you to skip over the hard stuff. And so one of the things that that has happened is we've studied through the book of Ephesians. We've kind of taken our time. I think I started back uh, in April or something, the end of April, and now here we are in August, and we're still studying this book. And one of the things that happens as you study through a book is you have to deal with what the text says. And And I say that because if you're paying close attention You've already noticed that last week we looked at Ephesians 6 verses 1 through 4 about children and parents and family relationships. And this morning we're jumping past verses 5 through 9 and started in verse 10. Verses 5 through 9 talk about slaves and masters. And so the reason for that, just so you know I'm not like letting myself off the hook, is that when school starts back I'm going to be starting a new uh, preaching series and uh, and I am going to, I plan to come back to Ephesians 
6, 5 through 9 at that point. So I don't want you to think I'm being flaky, you know, and I'm just jumping around, something's there. The thing, the, the, the truth is, the reason I like preaching through a book is because of the fact that we have a tendency, teachers and preachers, uh, all of us kind of do this. We, we jump to our favorite passages of Scripture, and we kind of camp out there, right? And, but Paul wrote a letter to a church, and I think there's value in, in really digging deeper into something like this letter. So I am not avoiding uh, the difficult topic of slaves and masters and have a lot to say about that, but I'm just going to wait a few weeks. So today, verses 10, 11, and 12 is where we're going to focus. And I want to reread. Paul kind of talks about there in the beginning about putting on the full armor in verse 11 so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And he's going to explain what that means, this armor that he's talking about in great detail in verses 13 and through 17. And so today I really want our focus to be on a very key verse, I think, in the entire letter. I think one of maybe the most important verses in Scripture, and it's not the only place that it gets addressed, but this very important idea that Paul writes, and he says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against, some of your translations might say, the powers and principalities. I'll use that phrase some this morning, but the NIV that I'm reading from right now says, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Let's pray together as we start. God, I ask this morning that you will uh, speak to our hearts uh, that you will uh, open our ears and our eyes and our minds. We realize, the God, that we, we are uh, the kind of people that have been born at a very particular point in history, and the spiritual world is not something we think much about. It's not something we've talked much about. It's not something that's been taught a lot. And I ask God this morning that you will, uh, through your Spirit, will speak to our hearts, that you'll teach us what it means uh, that our enemies are not flesh and blood, but they, that we have a battle that's being waged, uh, a war that's being waged against rulers and authorities, against very real powers that are active in this world. And help us, God, to be aware of how we can be engaged in this battle. I pray that you'll uh, speak through me this morning and that you'll allow any of m my own uh, stuff to get out of the way so that we can hear you clearly. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as humans, uh, we, we live in a, the physical world, the material world, some people might call it. And, and we have the ability to see and to taste and to touch and to hear and to feel. And we use these senses, right, to determine what is real, to determine what is good, to determine what is bad for us. And Scripture focuses on the material world a lot, and even at the beginning of the creation story. Right? God creates the world and says that there is much good about the world that he created. We see that in creation right? with our eyes. We see that in the birth of a child. We taste good food. We hear great music. We feel the embrace of another person. These are all things that we know and that we, we experience through our senses. But Scripture also believes there is more going on than just what our senses tell us. Scripture teaches and Scripture focuses on the spiritual world as well. And we hear that clearly in this few verses that Paul has written to this church in Ephesus. We know that Jesus spent time uh, 
at the beginning of his ministry uh, in the wilderness, right? You remember this? He, he's, he's baptized and he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And during that time, he's tempted by Satan. And I want you to just listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 4 in the middle of his encounter with Satan. He says these words. He says, and, and the, or Luke says, and then there's some other words that Jesus says. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to Jesus, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now that might feel odd because we feel like Jesus is in charge, but apparently Satan has been given some level of authority over the world or has claimed, I'm going to use the word, claimed some authority over the world. And so Jesus says to him in return, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So we see in this passage that Jesus believes that there is something happening in the spiritual realm, right? That he is engaged in and that we are engaged in. And Jesus believes that there is a real enemy, the devil, Satan, uh, that has influence and has limited power over this world. Earlier in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul says these words. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the enemy, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And so what I'm hoping to convince you of, if you are not already convinced of it, is that there is a real enemy. And that, that Jesus believed that there was a real enemy. Scripture talks about the fact that there is a real enemy. Paul believed that there is a real enemy. And in his famous book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis, the author, this book is about, if you've not ever read it, you, you need to, uh, it's about the evil, how the evil forces are at work in our world and this, this created story about uh, a, a, a demon that's assigned to a human to you know, put thoughts in their human's mind, and it's C.S. Lewis's attempt at trying to make sense of this spiritual realm that Paul's writing about in Ephesians. And C.S. Lewis says in the introduction to this book that the general public prefers to either ignore the forces of evil altogether, that's option one, pretend they don't exist, right? And to use cartoon images of the devil, you know, the red character with the horns and the pitchfork, which ultimately, you know, isn't helpful. And that's another conversation that I'm happy to have you with you another time. I'm not going to get too much into that now. Or we take this, this right, this is, this, there's a, it's not real or it's not, we don't really understand it. Uh, or we just ignore it altogether. Or we create some cartoon character version of Satan uh, that helps us maybe wrap our mind around it. That's one option. Or the other option is to believe so much, right, to take an, an unhealthy interest in the demonic. Uh, which can just be just as bad in the long run. Like these are two of the things that the general humanity chooses as kind of the way forward. We go to extremes and we can ignore it altogether or we can become so engrossed in the reality of it. But I, I think the better option is, like lots of things in life, somewhere in the middle to find middle ground. Acknowledge that middle ground for me, I think just in a sentence would be, acknowledge that there is an enemy and that there is a battle that is going on, and that you 
and I are a part of it. And that we have to not only acknowledge that there's an enemy and acknowledge that there's a battle, but then the middle ground would be to choose to enlist in the war. Some people call this spiritual warfare. The enemy, the reality is, though, the enemy does not want us to think too deeply about this topic. And I, I think that you can go to an extreme where you become so engrossed in it that it's unhealthy. And I actually don't even like to mention the name Satan. I use the word enemy a lot. I'm going to use the word enemy a lot this morning. I don't even like to waste my breath, right? So I think there's a balance that everybody has to kind of find. But I also know that as we find that balance that what happens is that Satan does not want us to talk about it because he knows that the more aware we are of the war that's going on, the better soldier you and I will be. An example that happened to me this today, this morning. So uh, every, every Sunday morning, I don't know if I've said this in a sermon before, I've probably shared it with a few of you, my normal Sunday morning routine is to get up about 5.30 in the morning and I have coffee on and I sit at our kitchen table and I begin going through my sermon uh, multiple times, making edits, changes, corrections, highlighting certain points that I know I want to emphasize. And so I was up at the table uh, this morning, sitting there about 6 o'clock, and, and, and did that for a couple hours. About 8 uh, o'clock, 8, 8.05 or so, I go to save some of the changes that I had made in my sermon. I have a brand new uh, Mac, Apple compute, laptop computer that I bought just earlier this summer because the other one that I'd had, I'd had for seven years, and it was not, not working well, and so uh, fortunate we, I was able to do that, grateful that I was able to do that. So there's nothing wrong with this computer, but I see something beginning to go on with my computer, and I, and I'm, I'm, and I try to save it, and it won't save, and so I get a little bit anxious about that. All of a sudden, my, the, the word processing document for Mac computers is called Pages, ironically, and, uh, and so, you know, PCs have Microsoft Word, and so I pay, the Pages uh, just clo- crashes. And so I was like, oh, that's not good. And uh, so I, I go and open it back up and find the sermon. And when it opens back up, it has reverted to some earlier version of uh, this today's sermon that was probably from like Wednesday or Thursday. And I look at the notes and I immediately, I, my, actually, my initial reaction is that I, I, actually, I actually LOL'd. I actually laughed out loud. Sometimes when you text LOL to somebody, you didn't actually laugh out loud. But in this case, I actually laughed out loud, and I thought to myself, this is unbelievable. I I don't think that, that the enemy wants us to talk this morning about this reality, that there are spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, evil spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. And and if if you know, we could probably explain it technologically in some way, but there's no exp- there should be no reason that that should have happened with a brand new computer and all the things that were in place, saving it multiple times throughout the week. Like, it doesn't happen, right? And so for the last couple of hours, uh, from 8.15 until 10.15 when I walked up the ramp, I was frantically trying to put this sermon back into co- a coherent thought because the version that, that it reverted to would not have been very good. It wouldn't have been a very good sermon. This one may not be a very good sermon, but at least there's an effort, right? And so my point is, like, it's, the, the interesting thing was all, like, I had all of a sudden, I had this just awareness of, and my reaction, I think, because most of you know me well, typically would have been panic and anxiety and, you know, nervousness. 
and I, I have felt this great sense of peace and calm and I, as I laughed out loud and just I out loud said, I know, I know that the enemy doesn't want us to talk about this today, but it's going to happen anyway, right? And so my point in saying that is there's extremes that can be found. Somewhere in the middle is a better place to, uh, to find. And the battle has been going on since the very beginning. This, the beginning of the story of humanity. At the beginning of the story of humanity, we see the presence of the enemy in the form of a serpent there with Adam and Eve. And in a book by a guy named Vern Elner, where, where he talks about this battle, he writes that there's this battle that's been going on since the beginning. And he points out that in Genesis chapter 1, God says, have dominion over the earth and all the animals. And then in Genesis chapter 2, God tells Adam to guard the garden. And that word uh, guard sometimes is translated, mostly is translated like till the garden, right? And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's stated like as if the most dangerous thing that Adam had to watch out for were weeds. And it could mean weeds, but the reality is weeds don't really show up until after the fall, so I don't think that it means that, right? Eller points out that then in, in Genesis chapter 3, we find something worse than weeds. We find the serpent. And Adam and Eve's job, this is an interesting way to think about this idea that I hadn't thought about before. Adam and Eve's job is to protect the garden from the enemy. And they didn't succeed, as we know, right? They gave in to temptation, and they delivered, in that moment, delivered their authority that they had over creation over to Satan. And so what happens is that as soon as we, in that moment, rebel against God, we turn on one another. Adam and Eve, Adam, right, turns on Eve. The firstborn son, Cain, turns on Abel. Murder within the first generation of humanity. Violence escalates so quickly that God has to protect Cain, Scripture says, from other people that want to kill him. And then in seven verses later, in Genesis chapter 4, we find this guy, Lamech, boasting about how many people he has killed. Why does it escalate so quickly? Why is this? Eller argues that this is because we have misdirected our fighting instinct, that we were intended and designed to fight the enemy. But as soon as, as we gave in to temptation in the garden, we surrendered that, right? That, that f- we betrayed that fighting instinct that should have been directed at the enemy, and we turned it toward one another. And when we forget who the real enemy is, this is what we do. We attack each other, right? One could argue that one of the reasons that we are so quick to engage in human warfare is because we are slow to engage in spiritual warfare. Whether it's literal war or just how we talk about one another, how we judge one another, how we gossip about one another, how we tear each other down, right? Human warfare. We're too good at it. Instead of pillaging the enemy line and the enemy camp and taking it back for God, we pillage each other, which brings us back to Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says that our battle, our struggle, isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the forces of evil in the spiritual realm. And here's a general rule of thumb that I, that I learned. I learned from somebody else, but I think it is really helpful. And if you get only one thing from today's sermon, this is the thing I want you to take away. If it has flesh and blood, it is not your enemy. If it has flesh and blood, it is someone, it is to be someone that you are fighting for, 
And the way that you fight for them is by resisting the powers that are always trying to get you to fight them. Jesus is the perfect example of how to live this out. Think about this for a second. I don't know if you've noticed this in the Gospels, but have you ever noticed that Jesus always treats people as victims? I want to say that again because I think it's really it's cra- it's, it changes the way you look at Jesus' life. He always treats people as victims. Jesus recognizes that the battle isn't against the people. Jesus never blames anyone for the infirmities that they have as he encounters those infirmities. Even if what they have is caused by a, uh, or influenced by a demonic power, he never blames the person. He never blames anyone for being demonized. You won't find a time. I would challenge you to look. If you, if you, if you don't want to take my word, that's great. You'll, that means you'll be studying scripture this week. right? The woman at the well. The beggar on the side of the road, the leper, his betrayer, Judas. In every single person, he recognized the real enemy wasn't the flesh and blood person in front of him, but a spiritual enemy that was at work in the lives of those people. Jesus never says, boy, you must have really messed up in your past. How could you have possibly gotten to this point? Right? Instead, he prays from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus never belittled someone because of their sin. Instead, he said, whoever is without sin, be the first to cast a stone. Jesus never declared war on people. Instead, his life is one ongoing revolt against the powers and principalities. Every healing, every exorcism of a demon that Jesus engaged in was a revolt against the evil forces that oppress this world and fuel sickness and fuel disease and fuel demonic oppression. Jesus' solidarity with the poor is a revolt against the powers that oppress culture still to this day by fueling greed and fueling poverty. Jesus' consistent love for beggars and women who were considered second-class citizens and sinners that were judged by religious leaders. And Jesus' consistent engagement with Samaritans and Gentiles crossed lines and denounced the powers and, that oppress culture by creating different categories of people. The way that Jesus died on the cross, expressing the love of God, revolted against the powers in our world that fuel violence, that fuel the urge to, uh, uh, that humans have to lord over one another. Jesus does the opposite of that and dies for us. He gives his life for his friends and his enemies. Jesus' life and his death are one sustained act of love toward people. Jesus never battled people. He fought for people. And he did this because he understood clearly who the battle was against and we church are called to be like jesus and to wage war against the enemy the way that jesus did and the way that we do this first and foremost is by recognizing who our struggle is really against if it has flesh and blood it is not your enemy which also means as a sort of an aside that you 
aren't the enemy, right? Because one of the things that the enemy will want to say about you, to you, in your mind is maybe you can get past all the other problems that everybody else has and you, you, you can get to the point where you don't see them as the enemy, but you can't get over your own stuff and you are convinced or have been convinced that you are the enemy. And the enemy is at work in our world and we are in the battle. And that means shots are being fired all around you. Right? Do you ever wonder just for a minute why it's hard in many moments of life to practice your Christian faith? Like why you find it hard to forgive people? Why you find it hard to pray regularly? Why you find it hard to resist temptation? Right? I, I just don't think, and I think that we do a disservice to what's going on in the spiritual realm if we call it coincident or accident. Like Satan wants us to struggle with those things and is working against us actively. Shots are being fired at you. Right? Have you ever had a sense, maybe, as a follower of Jesus, that you were being resisted by something? Things just seem too hard. You want to do good. You want to forgive. You want to extend love when it's hard. You want to give generously. You want to develop habits of prayer. You want to do those things. But around every turn, there seems to be some new distraction. There seems to be some new excuse for why you shouldn't or couldn't do such a thing. In Romans 7, Paul calls this our sinful nature. You want to do good, but sin is there with you. Waging war, Paul says, against your mind. Shots are being fired, and the enemy is only interested in stealing and killing and destroying you and me. But Jesus came to bring life and to bring it to the full. So what does this look like? What does it look like for us to engage in the fight? It looks like forgiveness. It looks like love. It looks like mercy. It looks like patience. It looks like generosity. It looks like unity. And sometimes it can look like a lot of other words that I don't have time to mention, but I think sometimes, especially those of us who have been following Christ for some number of years and we're here and a part of a community on a regular basis and we hear a lot of teaching and we hear these words all the time forgiveness and love and mercy and unity and patience and generosity and you know whatever other word you would want to add to that list right and we we think of those we don't think of those things as 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 powerful as they are jesus says in matthew 5 that you are salt and light that, that means you have the ability to maintain the ground that has been claimed by jesus christ when he died and was raised from the dead and as light, you have the ability to push darkness back. Every time, right? We, can't, we, we have to stop thinking of these words as just normal in our vocabulary. They are supernatural acts that God uses to make a spiritual impact. And so every time, that means you forgive someone, right? What you're actually doing is you're performing a physical act in this realm that has an impact in the spiritual realm because it is pushing the enemy line further back. That thing you don't like about that person, right? They aren't the real enemy. Every time we love someone that is hard to love, we are performing here in this physical space an act that has an impact in the spiritual realm. Every time we choose to trust Jesus, 
with whatever is going on in our lives over fear, over worry. We are performing a physical act in this realm that has an impact in the spiritual realm. I know, as an example, that some of you undoubtedly are probably still uncomfortable with the fact that I would do something like invite, like I did this summer, invite a Bible church pastor or a Baptist pastor to speak in our Wednesday night summer series. I don't know that. Nobody's told me that, but I just assume. And it just felt like another good example to use that, you know, we've done other things like this in the past, but the the reason I use that example is because here's the truth about that. Like, I actually believe that the invitation is, is really not what's happening. Like, there's something happening, an invitation, and somebody comes and speaks, or we do something with another church that's not a part of our tribe. The truth about why I believe in doing something like that is that I believe that pursuing Christian unity, with all my heart I believe this, is actually an act in spiritual warfare. Because what the enemy wants is for Christians to be against one another to be in competition, to be focused on how they don't do something or they don't teach something or they, you know, correctly or uh, they don't worship in a particular way, right? And when we're focused on each other, we are battling flesh and blood. And Paul says the enemy is not flesh and blood. But you see the impact of evil forces at work in the world with things like child slavery and poverty and addiction. Marriages struggle, I believe, because there is a spiritual battle going on. The enemy does not want marriages to be successful. Children rebel because there is a spiritual battle going on. These things are the physical evidence that there is a spiritual war going on and that the the enemy is wreaking havoc on human lives. And so what this means, the good news in this, is that every time we walk alongside somebody that's struggling with an addiction. Or we walk alongside someone that is hurting in some particular way. We are lining up with Jesus to say, this person matters to God and has unsurpassable worth. And I will fight for them because they aren't the enemy. They are, they have, something is going on in their life that is deeper than the physical eye can see or the physical ear can hear. And I believe, I even believe the physical act of baptism is so much more than just getting into the water and coming up out. It is, it is certainly a surrendering of your life and having your sins washed away. But I believe it is also an engagement in the spiritual battle. It is enlisting in the fight. Because you are filled with the Spirit of God that will guide you and lead you and make you able to do things you could not do before. Every time one of our kids comes and drops money in these buckets, are we able to see that they are participating in a physical act that has an impact in a spiritual realm? They are participating in helping to rescue kids from slavery and therefore are participating in the spiritual battle. See, we thought we were just giving money when those trays got passed around or the kids came and dropped money in these buckets. No, there is something bigger going on. And this is the real reason that we support, that we have missions, that we support things like Whetstone and City Square and Mercy Project and Purpose Project and all the other ones that I'm not mentioning, right? This is the real reason we want to fight for marriages to thrive, the real reason we want to pray for our kids and pray for our enemies, because our simple physical actions have spiritual ramifications. And this is also why we need Jesus, because Jesus has shown us how to engage in this battle. 
two ways that d- d- Jesus engaged. He didn't go looking for it, right? But when, when it came upon him, he declared authority over it in Jesus' name. And we have the ability to do that. A practical example is if you're hard, having a hard time forgiving someone, right? Maybe you acknowledge first that you're in a spiritual battle, that Satan wants you to hold on to that grudge, hold on to that unforgiveness. Maybe we're not able to be at a place where we can work at reconciling or forgiving until we actually acknowledge the stronghold that the enemy has over us in some particular area. Right? This is true in marriage, as I said earlier. You think Satan wants marriages to survive and to thrive? Of course not. This is true with worry and fear and anger and addiction. Like how much change would there be if we were to start by acknowledging that there is a warfare dimension to those things? Like if Satan can just keep us afraid enough, right, to sit and not do anything, to not engage in the battle, then he's won. He's, he's, he's claimed some ground that we haven't reclaimed. How much would it transform our lives if we understood who the real enemy was? And I, I think it would drastically transform our lives. If it has flesh and blood, it is not your enemy. Whether the enemy is on the other side of the world or the enemy is across the room, the, the enemy doesn't have flesh and blood. Paul says. There's a bigger battle that Christians are engaged in and that's the one that we're focused on because hearts and lives and souls are at stake. Right? The spiritual realm is real. The enemy is real. The war is real and our call to live as radical soldiers that are engaged in a real battle is real. Is revolting against the powers is is a real act and every Christ-like act that you engage in will be used, I believe, to push the enemy back and advance the kingdom of God. Scripture says that God did not give us a spirit of fear, right? Timidity, right? But of power. And so the hope is that we take from this a sense of boldness, not a sense of anxiety or concern or fear or worry or anything like that, because Paul clearly says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power like for Paul, the, it doesn't even seem to, he doesn't even seem to think that the enemy is going to take over any more ground. He's just giving us tools, awareness of the fact that this is a reality in our world. And I think part of the reason I want to talk about it as I have is that I don't think we think about it enough. I, got, I don't think we think about the real and present danger that is around us all the time. And a practical way that we can engage in it is by living as Christ modeled. So that every act, every Christ-like act we engage in will be used by God every, in this physical space, in the spiritual realm, to push the enemy line back. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of boldness and power. This morning, I want to close by actually reading from earlier uh, in this letter to the church in Ephesus, where, where Paul talks about this idea in some different language. And you're welcome to look with me. I'm going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 18. And then I'm going to read through verse 21. And then I'm going to jump to chapter 2 and start in verse 6. If that, if that uh, didn't make sense to you, then just hear these words. It's a prayer of sorts. And I want to just close with this prayer as we end today. Paul says, I pray. And part, let me say this before I start it. 
I want you to hear these words. We studied this earlier this year, but I want you to hear these words now with, by, with think, by, and think about the spiritual war that's going on because I think they apply to this. That's why, for why I want to read it. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power that is at work in you is the same as the mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in that age, but also in the one to come, or not only in this age, but in the one to come. And God also, chapter 2, verse 6, raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable great riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has placed Christ above all powers and principalities. And God, Paul says, has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Like this should give us a confidence and a boldness to engage in the fight because you have Jesus on your side. And our task is to recapture the ground that the enemy has taken, to liberate brothers and sisters that are trapped in bondage and to live like Jesus lived. Let's pray together. God, we pray this morning that you will, uh, you will enlighten the eyes of our heart so we can understand, we can see in deeper ways what's going on. Help us to live with an awareness of the fact that so much around us, the bondage that people are in, the sin in our own lives, the struggle that we all feel at various times about various things are a result of the war that is going on in the spiritual realm. God, we, we are humbled by the fact that we get to participate in the battle because it feels like it should be happening in, the, in a realm that we can't understand and therefore shouldn't have a role, but you somehow, through the, the, the work of your Spirit, you allow us to do physical things here that make a spiritual impact, have spiritual ramifications. And I pray, God, that you'll open our eyes to see ways that we are sitting on the sidelines that we need to get up and be more engaged in our relationships and in our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our church. And we need to reclaim the ground for you that the enemy has taken. God, we're grateful that Jesus is a name that is above every name and that you are the good, good father that we sang about earlier. And we're grateful to be your children. And we pray that you will help us as we live this life on this earth. We pray in the name of Jesus. And the church said, amen. This morning, uh, we want to provide an opportunity. It may be that uh, you, you've, you don't feel like you're enlisted in the battle and you kind of feel like you've been sitting on the sidelines or you, and you want to talk to somebody about that or pray about that. Uh, it may be that you haven't enlisted in the battle at all and you need to surrender your life to Christ in baptism. That would be a great way to respond today. But however you need to do that, we, wanna, we recognize there's a lot of needs today. 
And they may have nothing to do with the sermon. And so however you need to respond to God, let's do that as we sing this song together. Be still and know that I am God. Be still.